Amen. You want to preach? <laughs> All right. Um, kiddos. I forgot my word last week and I got a lot of complaining. Um, forgive me. Here's your word. I did not forget this week. Your word is shalom, which may not be a word you know. So you're going to learn a word. And most importantly, you're going to ask your parents, uh, what does shalom mean? Why did Pastor Robert choose that uh, for, his, uh, for his sermon uh, this morning? And uh, write how many times, if you're visiting with us and you have kids, we just tally up how many times I use the word of the day. And I have to choose a scorekeeper to be my official scorekeeper. And it's usually somebody I want you to meet and get to know. This week's scorekeeper, my son actually has his hand raised. No, I'm not calling on you. <laughs> Chloe Gabbard, stand up. What? Chloe is somebody you really need to know. If you were to call the TCPC office this day, if you were to get an email from TCPC, if you schedule an appointment with me, it is now Chloe. Chloe now mans the front desk. One man's the front desk, I suppose. Um, Ruth has served there forever, and you heard a couple weeks ago that she's transitioning into part-time work. So Chloe uh, is there running the front desk and answering questions and emails and all that stuff. So Chloe will be keeping score of how many times I say shalom. It begins when I start the sermon, not now. And um, kids, you can come argue with her. Um, Parents, I actually have some parents that have been getting into it a little bit too. So she'll be in the back afterwards. Introduce yourself to Chloe and see how you do. All right. Uh, here's where we are. The, entire, the entirety of chapter 17 is Jesus talking to the Father in prayer. So this is his final word to his disciples, literally. I've said often that the whole discourse should be, um, should be viewed that way, uh, as, Je- as Jesus' final word to his disciples. But this is the final, final word to the disciples. And his final word is a promise that seems like nobody can find. It is the promise of peace in a world where there is no peace. The reason Jay and his family are in town this weekend is that um, we actually have our 20-year high school reunion. And it was a wonderful night. We had a good time seeing seeing, um, people I hadn't seen in a long time. And um, I came away away, uh, from the evening with, with two main observations take away. First, I I have officially won the award for uh, the most unlikely surprising career path. Um, It's it's very interesting to tell everybody I'm a pastor now. Uh, I got a range of my, my, um, I did get one blank stare, like, what are you doing now? I'm a pastor. I'm like, are you going to say something? (laughs) One person laughed, and I said, no, it's not a joke, I'm, I'm actually a pastor. And they're like, oh, great! Um, so, yeah, I, I will say, it is, this blessed my heart, uh, somebody said, um, yeah, uh, I was talking, and I won't, I won't use her name, but somebody told me, you know, I was talking to uh, somebody that went to Henry Clay that goes to your church now, and she said, you know, Robert used to sit behind me in class and make the most inappropriate comments. And now he's my pastor, and he's actually pretty good. <laughs> I guess I'll take that. So, yeah, so uh, the story of the night was how in the world did Robert Cunningham end up being a pastor? Here's, here is my second takeaway um, that honestly is, it, it, I had, even I had a hard time sleeping last night. It was on my heart this morning, just so burdened by this. 
is, is that life has been really hard for all of us. It is a weird exercise um, to leave high school full of hope, optimism, joy, life, dreams, all of these things, and then come back 20 years later and say, how are we doing? And of course, you know, my generation, I know some of you older folks, when you, do, when you go to, um, the joke is you go to reunions, it's, it's to pretend and fool everybody, make sure everybody thinks your life's all great. My generation's the opposite. It's like the overshare generation. You get into these awkward conversations and everybody's like, yeah, this is what's wrong and over vulnerability and all that stuff. Well, that was, that was going on and it was just story after story after story of heartbreak, of brokenness, of shattered lives and shattered stories. Life has been really hard on us. You, you can see that in our bodies. I mean, it's, it's crazy to remember who we are, and you don't, you, know, you, don't, you don't pick up with aging when it's you looking in the mirror. But you, to see us where we are and then where we are 20 years out of the blue, it's, it's insane. Abby's the one exception. She has gracefully transcended aging. It's amazing. I don't know. But she was the only one there that hadn't aged in 20 years. But we're wearing it on our bodies. Um, I hear these stories. You catch up, and it's the same questions of how are you doing? Where are you? Tell me about life. And I wish I could say that the 1998 class of Henry Clay is doing well, but we're not. Everybody's struggling. I obviously won't go into details about the stories of my friends, but um, one, one conversation in particular, just, I don't know, Abby and I were even processing it on the way home, where somebody pulled us aside and said, you know, something along the lines of, I follow, you know, I follow what you do on social media and I read your writings for KSR and all stuff. And, um, and like almost shockingly, she said, it seems like y'all are like, you're married and you're in love. I was like, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we have problems, but, and this is what she said. She said, so y'all aren't just like kind of coexisting roommates. And I was like, no, we're fabulous. No, we, we, we love each other. And you have four kids, like, and you're having fun. Like, yeah. And it, and it just, I don't know why that conversation, I, I left feeling like, man, I think my life's hard, and it is in so many ways, and people are sitting here amazed by a life that's going relatively okay. Because perhaps that's just not the way life is in this world. I don't think Henry Clay, class of 98, is the exception. I think this is true for all of us in this fractured, broken, sinful world that just beats us and harms us and ruins us and fractures us and destroys our families and our marriages and our lives. And yet here is Jesus promising the one thing that seems impossible to find in this world. The one thing, if I were to go around there and say, how are you doing to everybody in that room last night, including myself, if I were to go around and say, how's life? Not one person would say, peace. I have peace. Because this is not our experience in the world, and yet it is exactly what Jesus is promising us this morning. Let's take this one verse that we know so well and dig into it with two points. The promise of peace and the pathway of peace. Here's the promise. 
I have said these things to you that, that, well, that which shows you how important this truly is. That he, when he says, I have said these things that, he's saying this is the purpose of what I've said. And these things is not the immediate context. This is the entire discourse. This is him wrapping everything that we've been in for over a year. He's wrapping it up. He's saying, I have said all of this to you, Taste Creek Presbyterian Church, for a year. I've said all of this so that this is the reason. And here's the reason. In me, you may have peace. Now, the word peace is a very loaded word, if you're familiar with Scripture. Um, in the Greek, it's Irene, but... Um, and the old, the old Testament predecessor is the more popular, um, famous word that was so big to, to, to the Jews and the Hebrew language, the word shalom. Shalom means uh, much more than the way we think of peace, which is just basically absence of violence. The idea is wholeness or completeness, um, things as they should be, exactly right, which is why shalom was Israel's preferred word to describe Genesis 1 and 2. You look at the, those two chapters before everything got ruined and you say, what word could possibly encompass that vision of beauty and, and glory and, and wholeness and wellness and flourishing? Indeed, what could encompass perfection? The Jews said shalom. Everything exactly how it should be. But the reality is, as I've already said, things are not as they should be. Shalom was interrupted, violated by Genesis 3. One transgression, one sin, and it all comes undone such now, such that now shalom only visits us in our dreams. And perhaps you're tempted to believe shalom is now exclusively relegated to your dreams. And you know what? Why wouldn't you? This fallen world mocks the thought of shalom. It's for fairy tales. It's for the stories we tell ourselves. It's for the daydreams that we dream. Never, ever can shalom be real. Now that's not to say that life can't be good. Life's actually good. I'm not going the Eeyore route, the cynic route. I'm not doing that. Life is good. It can be good. Last night, I had a heck of a time. We had great time fellowshipping. So life can be good, really good. It's that life can't be shalom. Complete, whole, altogether, without defilement. And that's what we're pining after. Not just good, but complete. So we know love. We can taste love. But nobody knows complete love without the defilement of heartbreak. We know friendship. Great friendship. Friendship of Jay, my best friend. We, we know friendship, just not complete friendship without the defilement of betrayal. We know pleasure, just not complete pleasure without the defilement of pain. And ultimately, we know life. Life can be great. We know life, just not complete life without the defilement of death. And it's this completeness that we deeply long for but are tempted to give up on. We lower our expectations, adopt 
a make the best of things philosophy of life and we give up on shalom. We give up the dream of Eden in order to cope with life outside of Eden. But here is Jesus with one final word, one final statement, one final promise that sums up all of his message and ministry, one final offer, don't give up on shalom. You can have it. You can own it. He says that you may have peace. You may possess it. Eden's dream of completeness can be yours. How is that even possible? Our doubts cry out, right? Well, there are two words here that redefine shalom for us as something that is found not in circumstances, but in our Savior. He says, in me you may have peace. Jesus does not view shalom as a culture that we should expect in this fallen world, but instead he views himself as, as a form of an oasis, a, what I'm calling a shelter of shalom in this shattered world. How is that possible? How do we find it in him? Well, let's find out by looking now at the pathway of peace. So he's promised, you can have this in me. How? In the first half of the verse, he does that promise, I have said these things to you, may have peace. Now in the second half, he's going to defend that statement. That is to say, he's going to show us how it is that he is a shelter of shalom. And he does so by proposing two truths, two truths that lead to shalom. And let me tell you what they are up front, and, um, and, then, we'll, and then we'll look at them. Here's what he's essentially going to say. The world is going to hurt you, but I'm going to hurt the world. I'm going to hurt the world more than the world will hurt you. Look at the two definitive statements here. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's the first definitive. You will. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the second promise. You will have tribulation. Sorry, no doubt, you're going to have it. But I have overcome the world. Now let's consider both those separately. So first, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. What's so interesting about that statement is he literally just said you may have peace. And then the next words out of his mouth are a guarantee that you will experience the opposite of peace. You're going to have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. That's the opposite of peace. What this does is immediately show us that Jesus does not view shalom as in this fallen world as exemption from this fallen world. He does not view shalom as we are tempted to view it merely fixed circumstances. Instead, he acknowledges, no, he doesn't acknowledge, he promises terrible circumstances. Historically, this verse has been translated um, as, in, as in this world you will have trouble. It's probably how you memorize and how you've heard it many times. I like what the ESV does here because it's more faithful to the Greek. You will have tribulation. This is not Jesus promising inconveniences, tough times, bad days. This is Jesus promising anguish. Tribulation. And indeed, this is proven true. The fallen world is tough enough on everybody, but it's doubly tough 
if you are a follower of Jesus, which is who he's speaking to here. If anybody ever tells you following Jesus will make your life easier, please tell them they are wrong. It makes your life harder, much harder. So hard that Jesus says it is akin to picking up a cross. Because we have to share in the normal pains of the fallen world along with the added pain of following Jesus in a fallen world, which is really hard. Because following Jesus in a fallen world brings with it two additional sufferings that we have to bear. Denial of the world and hatred from the world. What do we mean by denial? Do you know how, how hard it is to say no to this fallen world? In a world of lust, to say no to lust in the name of purity? In a world of greed, to say no to greed in the name of generosity? In a world of hatred, to say no to hatred in the name of charity? That's hard. You know what's not hard? Sinning. That comes pretty easy to me. Pretty natural. It's hard to say no to sin. It's really hard to deny sin. So, so hard that it is likened unto a death in Scripture. But to be a Christian is to tell yourself no. When it would be much easier to tell yourself yes. We spend every day dying a thousand deaths of self-denial. That the world doesn't have to worry about. But it's not just denial of the world, it's hatred from the world. So get this. We not only have to go through the pain of saying no to the world, we then get hated by the world for saying no to the world. You see, your denial of the world is a protest against the systems of this world. When John uses the word world in his gospel, it's not talking about the actual physical creation of the world, or even really the people. It's more of the systems of the world, uh, the fallen system of the world. And, and the point is, is if you deny the world, you are making a protest against the systems of this world. And those who love the systems will hate the protest. Jesus says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. You're going you're to be hated if you follow me. Because in following me, you are protesting the world. So not only do we have to share in the common afflictions of this fallen world that everyone experiences, everything from aging to tragedy, we have the added affliction of denial of this fallen world, which feels like death, along with hatred from this fallen world, which could actually be your death. It's tough to follow Jesus, and yet Jesus says, in me, you may have shalom. How do we reconcile that? How do we make sense of this? Well, apparently, Jesus believes he is the stronger in I in. Meaning this. There's two ends here. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. In me you will have peace. What he's setting up there are competing ends. <laughs> and he believes that being in him is stronger than being in the world. Or the, the peace 
that comes with being in him is stronger than the tribulation that comes from being in the world. Let's look at this second truth here. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I don't like overcome here as a translation because that isn't strong enough. It conveys something like, I've survived the world. The word is a word of victory, of triumph, truly of conquering the world. That's why I say Jesus hurt the world. So the pathway to, pathway to peace is this truth. The world will hurt you, but I will hurt the world more. Again, defining world as in the fall. You are in the world, and that's suffering, but you are also in me, and that's victory. That truth, that yes, I am in this world suffering tribulation, but I'm in Jesus who has triumphed over the world. That truth, rightfully believed, internalized, and applied, becomes this shelter of shalom. That truth becomes peace that transcends all understanding. A peace that transcends or transforms even all circumstances. A peace that triumphs over all tragedy, but it has to capture your heart is the point. Or to use the language here from Jesus, it has to take your heart. Let this take your heart. And that's the problem. Shalom eludes us because we doubt that Jesus is stronger than the world. We doubt this truth. It has not seized our hearts. Our hearts doubt this. And you're not alone. The disciples did too. Here is Jesus. His last word to his disciples is, peace I give you, take heart, I have overcome the world. And then imagine what they were thinking the very next day. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Next day, with take heart, I've overcome the world, ringing in their ears, they watch the world arrest him, the world condemn him, mock him, torture him, crucify, bury him. Imagine what they were thinking when they watched the one who promised to conquer the world be utterly conquered by the world. I can tell you what they're thinking. You don't have to imagine, because we're told. Their reaction, the opposite of shalom. Fear, doubt, panic, weeping, unbelief, abandonment, and on and on I could go with adjectives opposite peace. That's where they were when the world conquered Jesus. And that, of course, was their response because the promise of shalom in this world was based upon the triumph of Jesus Christ over this world. And Jesus didn't overcome the world. The world overcame him. And so the hope of shalom is dead. There's a plan they did not see coming. Satan did not see coming. Nobody saw coming. The tomb welcomed Jesus in like a Trojan horse. And hidden inside his lifeless body was the weapon of his triumph that he promised. Jesus overcomes the world by overcoming the worst the world had to offer. Jesus rises from the dead. And fast forward to John 20. Where are the disciples in John 20? You don't have to turn there, I'll just take us through it. Where are the disciples in John 20? They're back in the same room. Back in the upper room. But John says that they have the doors locked. 
because they're afraid. Not shalom, not peace, but fear. And then it says Jesus appears in the locked room. Don't miss that. We lock our doors to feel safe. We lock our doors to give ourselves this illusion of shalom. But Jesus is stronger than locked doors, meaning he is the source of peace, not locked doors. And can anyone tell me the first word of the resurrected Jesus to his fearful disciples after his resurrection? Somebody says it. Shalom. Peace be with you. Can anybody tell me the second word of the resurrected Jesus to his fearful disciples? Shalom. Peace be with you again. He says it twice. He says, peace be with you. They look at him like, what are we supposed to do with this? He says, peace be with you. Final word in the upper room discourse, peace I give to you. Goes out, overcomes the world, comes back to that room. Now peace be with you. And something strange happens to these weak, doubting, fearful, faithless disciples of Jesus. What happens is shalom takes over their lives. Listen, the disciples' lives got much harder, not easier, just like Jesus promised. In this world, you will have tribulation, and boy, did they. Persecution, imprisonment, eventually all but one martyr's death. And yet their lives testify to something very peculiar, a peace that transcends their tribulation. The most, the most significant attribute of the early persecuted church, historians will tell you this, by the way, secular historians will tell you this, the most peculiar attribute of the early persecuted church was their peace when it seemed like they had no good reason to be peaceful. They were throwing them to lions. They were lighting them on fire for Nero's parties. They were just massacring them. They were plundering all of their property. And they were like, what do we do with this people? We can't break them. Peace, when there should be no peace. And they did that because they knew Jesus had actually won. They knew Jesus was risen from the dead, which means they knew that Shalom had finally broken through. They knew that his resurrection was a preview of their future resurrection. Indeed, the resurrection of the entire creation where Shalom will reign once, once again. They knew that despite what every miserable circumstance around them was telling them. The resurrection was truer than their circumstances And they knew it would one day undo their circumstances. And it was that knowledge, that confidence in the resurrected Jesus that enabled them to walk about their lives of tribulation within this shelter of shalom. And the same can be true for you. I want to invite you to vulnerably expose your heart to the possibility of shalom again. The possibility of shalom that you so long for but you have given up on. Don't lower your expectations to cope with this life. Raise your expectations to Eden once again. 
was very convicted by how I left my reunion last night. It was such an embarrassing and sinful reaction to what was really a fun evening. Here, here it is. Here's my confession. I left feeling better about my life. I left saying, well, you know, Abby and I fight, but man, divorce isn't even a thought. Like, could never imagine that. I left saying, well, my boys aren't perfect, but man, they're, they're good, healthy, well-adjusted kids growing up in a stable home. I left saying my job has a lot of difficulties, but, but I have a job that I love that enables me to provide for my family. I left saying, yeah, I've got my sin struggles, but I'm not ravished by an addiction that's ruining my life. I, 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 truth be told, things are bad, but they could be worse is the way I left. After talking to all these friends. Brothers and sisters, that, that response is not just sinfully judgmental and arrogant. More than that, it's a concession. It's giving up on Eden and just trying to make the best of things in this miserable world. It's giving up on shalom by comparing myself to people who in my sinful estimation have a little less shalom than me. It's giving up and turning to the comparison game to try to make myself feel better about my life. Friends, don't give up on shalom. Does your life look like the disciples before or after the resurrection? Does your life look like Jesus is dead or alive? Does your life look like Jesus has overcome this world or are you just coping? Will you open yourself up to the possibility of shalom? In the name of the risen Lord Jesus who has overcome this world, let your hearts go wild with the hope of peace. Courageously, and confidently look at your circumstances in this troubled world no matter what it is, your heartache, your loneliness, your regrets, your betrayal, your abuse, your persecution, your broken relationships, your failing health, health yes, yes, even your own grave. Look at these things and instead of lowering your expectations to cope with them, look them square in the face and say, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And he says to me, peace be with you. Let his victory be your shelter of shalom until the day his resurrection victory invades it all. And we no longer need a shelter because shalom will be all we know. Let me pray. Lord, give us this confidence. We confess our feebleness. We confess our fears. We confess our cynicism about peace and its possibility. We confess our doubts of your victory Show us now in this sacrament that you are victorious. And may it transform whatever tribulation we have, knowing that you have overcome the world that hurts us so badly. Our trust is in you, Jesus. Amen.